Hey, Jack. How's it going? I'm doing okay. What'd you have for dinner? We already did this gag before we were recording. Welcome to the Wages of Cinema. I'm Andrew. And I'm Jack. And it is a hot day outside, although now hopefully it'll be a little bit cooler. And I suddenly feel like I should be talking like Samuel Jackson and do the right thing. It's a hot day. Uh, you have no idea. Before what I'm we about. Uh, <laughs> do the right thing is probably on my uh, movie list. It probably is. So, uh, but before we begin, I want to put some finishing thoughts on Avengers Two. Yeah, uh, Age of Ultron. It's good to talk about a movie that you know we talked about on a previous podcast. And for those of you who checked it out, uh, thank you for doing so. Um, and I think it's good though with this kind of movie sometimes to think about. Yeah, it. I I don't trust my I don't trust my judgment like three days after I've seen a movie in the theater. It's only uh, about three days afterwards that I start really like, wait, that didn't make any sense. <laughs> so what were some things about the movie that were the, some things better when you thought about or some things not so good? Well, I still have a, I still have a great uh, respect for its use of characters and juggling all these different people uh, right. in the, the narrative. Uh, the only thing I mentioned that I didn't mention in, my, in, the, in the podcast was uh, the middle. I think it does sag a bit in the middle. It uh, it, um, it gets a bit. Uh, you mean when they go to the farm? Yeah, uh, and it's not bad that they go to the farm. It's just that scene kind of. I think that not, they, I not think a lot they, happens. I think the audience though needed that break. And I think Whedon knew that, that after so much action has happened in the first hour of the film, and also you had the whole aspect of uh, Scarlet Witch messing with their minds, and, you know, how are they going to function after that? Yeah, but after that, uh, I feel like so much, uh, you know, so so much time has passed that they still don't hold on to any of that anxiety that we had from before. Mm. And in the end, I, th I think that... The tension doesn't really build too much. It's like problems are solved a little too quickly in sequence, like uh, you know how the vision comes about and how uh, hmm. and how uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver make that turn and uh, a whole bunch of things. I still think uh, it, it the stakes don't raise uh, don't pile on to each other as 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 well as they did in the other films. Uh, I still really like it though. Yeah, I like it a lot as well. Um... I think I, what, what I remember more are just the character interactions a bit. As yeah, I, that's I, what's going to make this w watchable. I mean, not just watchable, but going to make it really enjoyable for the next few years. Yeah, and when I revisit this movie, I wonder when if it really will be like the first Marvel movie that gets a proper director's cut. Because yeah, that's I, got me intrigued too. Because I heard about uh, scenes that were cut out. Yes. Uh, you know, yeah, it, that's it's it, it's a movie that, from what I've heard and read, had something like a three-hour original running time, and that's always that's that's dicey though with a lot of films. But you know, I wouldn't mind seeing that three-hour director's cut if it exists. A good a, a couple of critics made the interesting point, and I think it's probably what they they probably trimmed out more of the things involving uh, the trauma from Scarlet Witch. That there were probably more scenes. Showing them, you know, trying to deal with their well, we'd have to we'd have to wait and see if there actually is a director's cut. That, so well, we're, let, let's not get our hopes up a bit. Oh no no no! Director's I, cuts are always kind of dicey. I'd say the only director's cut I've seen that's w been worthwhile have been the Alexander director's cuts. 
Really, like ever? Yeah, I mean, I, I I saw the Kingdom of Heaven director's cut. I've seen. I think well, I've seen the Blade Runner director's cut, but I haven't seen the original. Uh, so I've you don't seen... have a basis of comparison. All there. Right. I saw the director the director's cut of The Exorcist, and like, there's only one or two extra mm. scenes in there. Not really necessary. Uh, but Alexander, with every director's cut, got successively better. I think a director's cut is useful, though, if a movie was. Uh, Taken away by the director and recut by the studio. Well, in the case of Blade Runner, that's that's basically the best way I mean, to that's enjoy. Why, yeah, that's Bla- why Blade actually uh, Hayao Miyazaki had it in his contract for all of the movies that when they started doing movies with Disney, he had it in his contract that you cannot change a single frame of this movie, like you cannot cut anything out, and. Um, because of that, actually, one or two of the actually one of their movies Disney just never distributed. Because, yeah, I heard about that because it has references to menstruation. Yeah, only and people and Americans apparently can't handle that. So yeah, for some reason that and also because he one of his movies I think it was uh, Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind. That movie got cut up by a different American distributor uh, before Disney, and so Miyazaki was like, "No, you cannot do that again." And um, so that's why I actually. It, I wonder, but let's get back to Avengers. But anyway, the point is though, Avengers, a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I, I want to see it again though, just because of just I want to revisit a lot of Ultron's quips. He's just such a dynamic character. Yeah, and so we can get Matt's nitpicks out of our out of our brains. <laughs> Matt, I love you. Uh, Matt, I love you, but you just have to remember a movie is a movie. And You're still cool, though. We'll invite you back. All right. Oh, of course. All right. so now, let's... let's get down to business with the two-minute movie mile. <laughs> All right. I don't know. We All should right. have, like, a theme song for that. That'd be kind of funny. Would you like to go first, Jack? Um, I don't know if there's any particular order, but I believe I think you've seen could. more movies than I have, so go ahead. Oh, oh well, wait, are you already timing me? No. Good, because I just need one... Jack's, Jack sees so many movies that he forgets to write down his list. <laughs> well, I was a little bit busy in preparation for uh, what we were what we're going to talk about today, and uh, there's a lot to talk about. But um, I, but I'm about ready to start, and uh, yeah. So when you're ready to time me, I, I think I can go. All right, Jack, you are starting in now. Okay. My first movie is Ex Machina. Now the one about the android. The one about or the... Gynoid. Gynoid. Gynoid is a female robot. Oh, okay. An android looks like a man. A Gynoid looks like a woman. I did not know that. I guess that makes sense. Like androgynous is an android. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this movie is about a a guy who is invited to this very secluded mansion. And Oscar Isaac plays this eccentric billionaire genius inventor of a search engine, but he's spending all of his time creating AI, and he's finally gotten to the point where he has created this female artificial intelligence by using the sort of mechanisms that come with search engines inside of the brain, the sort of how instead of the what with search engines. And what you get are the movie has really just three characters. This sort of young guy who's brought into this world, Oscar Isaac, who is the inventor, and this woman played by, I'm going to mess up her name, but her last name is Vikander. She's a new actress. It's just her face on top of this metal exoskeleton. And 
it's a really fantastic movie. It's a thinking person science fiction film. This it's is hard sci-fi. Hard sci-fi that really emphasizes character and subtlety over massive special effects. Although the AI herself is a wonderful creation, you could tell that they probably used a uh, green screen for it or some type of uh, motion capture. Motion capture. Very subtle, like I said, all of it's based on the acting. There's this thing called the Turing test that happens between the young guy and the girl, and there's a lot of back and forth. Tell me about your head mother. Games. Yeah, well, also, is she going to try to use him to get out of the facility? And there's also a dancing sequence with a robot, which is awesome. Lots of funny. Alex Garland really knocked it out of the park with this one, and I hope to Time. see more movies from him. All right. Let me get my stopwatch ready. Okay. And let me just make sure that we're still recording. That's important. Yep. <laughs> hey, you never know. All right. So in three, two, one. Okay. I love Beauty and the Beast, and I saw another movie by Jean Cocteau, Blood of a Poet. Mm. This is significant because it was made at about the same time as another famous surrealist film, uh, Lodge d'Or, which we're going to talk about a little it's bit later. It's the producers of Lodge d'Or. Right. Uh, this was back in the time when rich people made movies just for art's sake. So what I think... Blood of a Poet is very different from other surrealist films of the time because it's not so much about... It doesn't seem to be about any sort of political message or any sort of uh, social it's, message. It's basically the poet... John Cocteau was a poet. Right. And he's exploring whatever comes to his mind. And also, right. It's very much about poetry and about what what it's like to be a poet and you know pressures exploring and... Exploring nature inspiration. and childhood. And I don't think it's as effective as... Unchen Andalou or Lodge d'Or, but it, it because it's not as but it does have some re no it's n certainly not uh, th there's nothing like a uh, a Jesus figure crawling out of a <laughs> sodomy party uh, but there is uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of hints at the director that Jean Cocteau would be there's the woman who is made up to look like a statue a very effective use of makeup which he's going to eventually use in Beauty and the Beast and there are lots of pioneering uses of special effects yes uh, I remember the snowball fight the snowball Most fight at all. the end which uh, you know a, you know a dead kid like bleeding out in the snow comes out of his mouth yeah and that then really like and then you, and then there's your your surreal image of two people playing cards over his dead body. I remember there's also a sh like a couple of shots where a t you see a tower falling. Yeah, those are just like a few clips, like a smokestack just being demolished. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a little bit of the sort of found footage you'd put into a uh, you'd put into a film. Uh, it's certainly not as effective as other surrealist films, but it does. Uh, it's a good. It's like a, it's like his first effort. It's like experiencing a poem through images. Yeah, I'd say that's good. Uh, but you know, the best was to come later. Time. Okay. Uh, cocktail. Cocktail. Yes. That sounds like a drink. All the cocktail cocktail? Yes. All right. Lame. All right, let's get started. <laughs> Go! All right, my next movie is called Belle Toujours. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, that's because... Then this... you're a film nerd. Well, no, but for you, Andrew, this is a sequel to Belle Toujours. You're kidding me. I am not kidding you. Who now, made this film? Now, here's the deal. This movie is made by the late director Manuel de Oliveira, and in case you don't know who he is, he was the formerly the oldest living director. He died at 106, and he made this film when he was 100. Jeez. Now, he made this film supposedly as a homage to Louis Buñuel. What happens <laughs> in this movie, and 
This is 70 minutes, and it's padded at 70 minutes. Ugh. It's a movie where they couldn't get back Catherine Deneau. Instead, they got some other actress. I'm looking up her name, but I can't find it. They got back Michelle Piccoli, who played Husson. Now, in case you don't remember, she he was, was he was the guy who sort of introduced Severine to the brothel and then told oh, yeah, that her guy. husband, supposedly, that she was at the brothel doing all this stuff. Like, you don't ever see if he actually told the husband. So he's the you so he him. is the only character who's carried over? Yes. Oh, jeez. The only character, a, a sequel made 40 years later, and the whole movie, what happens is he's at an opera, and actually the opera segment at the beginning is pretty good, but then he sees Severine, or who he thinks is Severine, he follows her around for most of the movie, finally tracks her down, has her come over to have dinner, you watch them eat dinner. That's it. That's the kind of padding. And then it's finally like, she wants to know, did you actually tell my husband about me going to the brothel? And Who he cares? Doesn't really tell. It, yeah, exactly. Who cares? And there's nothing really surrealist about the movie. There are two surrealist moments. There's a moment where guys, the guy's looking at a horse statue, and he thinks that the eyes are looking at him. And there's another moment where a random chicken is walking in a hallway. That's not surrealist. That's stupid. No, it's not. All right. Oh, God, this movie. All right, my it turn. It wasn't terrible, but... Uh... All right, let me open up my thing. All right. Yeah, it's it's the odd couple, too, of Ugh. surrealist films. <laughs> All right. In three, two, one. Last week we talked about The Karate Kid, so it made me curious. I watched the remake of The Karate Kid with Jackie Chan and Jaden Smith. Cool. All right. To start off, there are two big changes to this film that set it apart from the original. And ultimately, those two big changes are the major downfalls of this film. Uh, first, they move it to China. Mm, Second, really? yeah, it takes place in China. Uh, hmm. Second, uh, the characters, the main characters are way younger. Uh, Ra yeah, it was Ralph Macchio's Daniel was probably like was 15 teenager. or 16 when yeah. he, when you know, as a character. Uh -huh. Jaden's, uh, uh, Jaden's character Dre, Dre Parker, he's like 12. Mm -hmm. So the problem with this is, let's start with the age thing. He's supposed to be, he's supposed to strike up this relationship with this Chinese girl, and it's it really. And it's supposed to be analogous to like sort of this romantic relationship that uh, Ralph Macchio had with uh, with uh, Elizabeth. What's her name? Elizabeth Shue. Elizabeth Shue. But it really doesn't work because you know they're just twelve years old. I mean, I can't. I'm not saying you can't love when you're twelve years old, but really, it's more you, like a crush. You can't. You can't really have a deep relationship with another person at yeah. twelve. Like mm -hmm. you can have friends, but I mean, like girlfriend and boyfriend. It doesn't. I don't really buy it. Also, I don't buy the fact that he could be so fit. And be so disciplined at the yes. age of twelve. Second, the Chinese thing. Dre There's goes. Dre goes. Of karate too. There is no karate this time. It's all kung fu. What? Yeah, it's kung fu now. Uh, it's. Why call it the Karate Kid? Call it the kung. Because kid. of the money, Jack. Because of the money. Uh, and Jack because and he goes to China, and this works. And Dre, he seems like he. Uh, all right, he's way too much of a wise guy. He goes to China. He doesn't attempt to learn Chinese at all. Oh. Doesn't learn anything about China, even though he's gonna live there okay, the rest really of his fast. life. You have five seconds. How's Jackie Chan? Jackie Chan, he's kind of dull. He doesn't bring oh. much to the role, and it's just a note by note thing with no feeling. All right, time. Well, all right, let's not also, let's say no more about you it. You also need to remember that Jack, that for for those who don't know, Jaden Smith, also the star of After Earth. Don't care. 
All right, Jack, your turn. Well, hold on. Let me just one quick moment here. Oh, where where did I put that picture? Darn it! I thought. What difference does it make? Eh, Forget it. All right, I'll just. What's a podcast? We can't see anything, Jack. All right. All right. Forget it. Let's get started. Go. All right. My next film is called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Now, uh... Sounds sexy. It kind of is. What this movie is, is a Iranian film. Although it was technically shot in Los Angeles, or California. It's, uh, an Iranian vampire film, a feminist film. Really? Shot in black and white, and with a spaghetti western tinge to it. So... Alright. There's a lot going on in this movie. What it's about is, um... This guy, this young guy, is working for, like, a drug dealer, and the drug dealer is kind of an asshole, and what happens one night is that this, he, the drug dealer meets this girl, uh, who, you know, Iranian girl, she has the shawl over her head, and he brings her back to her, she brings, he brings her back to his place, and, uh, after trying to seduce her a little bit, she attacks and kills him, reveals, she's a vampire, oops, um, but what happens is now this guy who was working for him, he's sort of free and he kind of takes all of his drug money and drugs and stuff and starts trying to make money from himself. Now, on one hand, you say it's an Iranian feminist film with vampires and a Western tinge. The, the Western A, that seems awesome. B, it seems like a desperate attempt <laughs> to hold a film together. There is a lot of stuff going into this movie, but it's all presented with this, the person who made this movie. She's a new director. Uh, her name is Anna Lily Amirpour, um, and she has an incredible eye. She has created basically a look that is very, very cool. Now it almost borders on being what might one might say hipsterish. There are scenes where characters just sit and listen to records. Um, the vampire aspect, like it happens sometimes, uh, but it's really more about this guy and this relationship with this vampire chick. Really Done. good. Check it out. All right. I wish I, I had a little more to say about, it, but that's the aim of the two-minute movie mile. All right. Um. Yeah. I, I had more notes about it, but whatever. I got the general gist. All right. So Andrew, I'm ready to start with you again. In three, two, one. Ah ah ah. I've seen almost every Robin Hood. Come on! I've seen almost every Robin Hood film except Men in Tights because I just saw Robin and Marion. This has Audrey Hepburn, Sean Connery, Connery, and Bernard Shaw. uh, Robert Shaw. Bernard Shaw is different. (laughs) Robert Shaw as the Sheriff of Nottingham, meaning home as King John, who's only in it like for five seconds. Uh, So I imagine this is more about the romance. This is more about the characters of Maid Marion and Robin Hood. Uh, it it bears little resemblance to anything any other Robin Hood film. It basically just says uh, blatantly that everything was made up. <laughs> oh, so it's one so, of those like it's a character when, when piece. legend becomes fact, print the legend. Yeah, more or less. Um, the basics are just there because uh, they're just focus focusing on the characters mainly. Right. Uh, the, but I got this weird vibe for, at, from the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. and it looked very familiar. And I realized it was because the film reminded me, the way it looks, reminds me a hell of a lot of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Huh. <laughs> because 
Audrey well, Hepburn is Mar- made Marion, and she's dressed up in like a nun's habit. And I just kept thinking, zoot! <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know the French knights who have those conical helmets. Uh, in, yes. There are a bunch of guys dressed up like that, and it, it has the, into a newt. It has that sort better. of weird '70s sort of medieval look, and a tiny castle where it makes you want to say mm-hmm. it's only a model. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like it was as if like Richard well, Lester did like yeah. shot Robin and Robin and Marion, and then like Monty Python moved in. To take off, well, take over the sets well, the and the costuming about department. The Holy Grail is that that was a movie where they really went out of their way to make it look as authentic as possible, so it'd be funnier. But you're saying this is more of a serious. It's, film. Yeah, it is. It just looks the same. Looks a lot like it. I don't. I don't have no idea why. Um, Howard I want to make. Hepburn. They're great. Okay. I mean, uh, they're fantastic. Sean Connery's charming. Audrey Hepburn is Audrey Hepburn, so I can't complain. Really good movie. Okay. Well, I like Richard Lester. What else has he done? He, he did a Holiday's Night, Andrew. Oh. And and Superman 2. Eh, who cares? <laughs> yeah, you're not making any money off Superman 2. <laughs> New before Zod. All right. So. <laughs> I promise not to say I, who cares after every tidbit. Yeah, come on. <laughs> right. You're just going to sound like a grumpy grunch. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next one, Jack. All right. Ready, go. All right. The Sting. Uh, And I talked about Paul Newman a couple of podcasts ago. This is another movie that I just have to see. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been on my list for a while. Uh, What this movie is, it's set in the 1930s. About two bees. Well, it's about... Robert Redford is this con man. And he works with this uh, partner of his, this black guy. And what happens is, though, they they con the wrong guy out of money. They con, like, mob money. And... Uh, the black guy gets killed, and so Robert Redford kind of wants payback. Typical. And so he teams up with Paul Newman. Paul Newman is this experienced grifter con man specialist. And so they combine together to go- take back, to really, you know, not even so much take the hurt on violently, because that wouldn't mean anything, but Robert Shaw, hey, Robert Shaw, once hey. again, it plays this, like, villainous gangster banker. He's really a gangster, but he acts like he's just a banker. Right. And so they play this really long con, as they call it, involving a lot of card games and fixed horse races, and they make up an entire place to look like it's a betting saloon, but it's all like Paul Newman's hired people to act like they're there. Um, This was a fun movie, and yet it's kind of shallow. It, it won Best Picture How do you mean? in 1978. It's a lot of fun, but it doesn't really mean much. You don't really get a lot of depth out of it. It's almost I almost take it akin to, like, in the 1970s, what we've got, what we got years back with the Ocean's Eleven movies. Okay. You know, like we're gonna pull a caper against this guy who's a nasty thug, and we're gonna do a lot of, you know, sh- sleight of hand. We're gonna do a lot of conning. And that's fun. There are a lot of funny moments. My favorite scene in the movie involves Paul Newman acting totally drunk in a card game with Robert Shaw, just pissing him off. The ending really got to me. The real, the ending, and not in a good way. I thought the ending cheated. I felt like it snickered me. And I don't care what you say, it's not good, people. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I prefer Butch Sundance. Brutal. All right. I, I like the movie, but uh, it's not, it's overrated. All right. Now, here's where we're going to get a little bit of an overlap, because you and I... Saw a whole bunch of the same films. Yes, a whole bunch now, of very short films. Maybe we could call this our Daily Double. I'll bid uh, 10,000. Yes. What uh, is Madagascar? <laughs> 
I don't know. You look like you want to like, kick me when, you, when I do that. If I was closer. Okay. All right. Uh, but we got to talk about uh, two short films that we saw. Two of the first surrealist films ever made. Yes. The first one is The Starfish. Yes. Uh, let's get started on our timer. Yeah. All I, right, so let me take the lead on this one. Sure. Uh, the Starfish is basically is a film by an American surrealist photographer named Man Ray. Oh, he was American. I believe so, yes. Okay. And, unless I'm stupid. Was he I'm born stupid. as... Was that, I wish that was his real name. Yeah. I know it's not. And it's a... Uh, it's hard to explain. The no. best way I could describe this film... Uh, tell me if you agree. It seems more of a... More like a photo collage than a film. Um, a little bit. I think that there are... You could say there are two characters in the film. Uh, there is a man and a woman... What happens is, to the best that I could describe it, the mo- you see a man and a woman walking together. They go into a house. The woman takes off most of her clothes. I don't know if she disrobes completely, and she lays in bed. The guy leaves, and then we just get a series of images. We see like a close-up of a slow-motion image of a starfish. Yeah. We get like a- we get twelve different shots of starfish put together. Yeah, and then that's you know, that's the it, uniting image of the whole thing—the image of a starfish. Yeah, the starfish, and also, like I said, this woman who we don't really see because what happens is most of the film, it's like the the camera was sort of gla- the lens was yeah, it's got over. like gla- Vaseline At first, over. I'm gonna tell you really fast. When I started watching this, I watched it on YouTube. I thought I was given a bad copy. Really? I thought I actually stopped watching it because I thought that I. I should try to check out a better version because I didn't know that's how it was supposed to look. Oh, jeez. Like, I thought that I was being, you know, that this was just somebody uploaded a bad copy, but then I realized, no, 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 this is what the director intended. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I see why he did it, though. Why? Because... Help me figure this I, out. Well, why? The only thing I could think of is that he's showing a lot of risque images. He's showing, like, a woman... At one point, I think you see her with her legs crossed. You see her legs... I hope I'm not mixing up movies. It's hard for me to remember all the but images she, because when she takes off her clothes, there's also a shot where she's just you just see her legs and then you see a clear image of her feet and part of her legs. And yeah, every once in a while, 1920s, it, yeah. that was scandalous. Every once in a while, it throws in a clear image, and yeah, I, it seems and, a little random. And it's I it's certainly an early surrealist film because it doesn't have mm-hmm. it doesn't have a side. It's all images. It's all images. And there it's are some French subtitles poetry. which uh, talk about... There was a... Um, uh, I wrote this down. Uh, why don't you keep talking for just one second? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, there was one part. I was able to get like uh, translated I, I subtitles. Did, and, the first, and the first yeah. uh, subtitle was... Women's teeth oh. are objects so charming that one ought to see them only in a dream or in the instant of love. Yeah, that's what I'd written down. Yeah, you wrote that down too? Yes, well, because <laughs> the only thing that made sort of sense from the subtitles. Yeah. And I have to wonder if that has sort of something to do with what the movie's about, that maybe, you know, it's supposed to be a dream. We're kind of getting into dream territory where images don't have that much of an association to one another. There is that uniting image of the starfish. Yeah, also a lot of images of women. And it's, also it's the starfish and images of women. Things are obscured because of that glaze, that yeah. gauze. And because of that, it's almost like we're, you know, if you're looking through... I almost took it akin to when if you're in a church, sometimes some of the glasses that they have... Yeah, it's you know, you kind sort of, of wavy and glass and you can't yeah. see really through it. I th- I That's an wondering, interesting th- thought about it. I wondered if that was part of it. Again, you can't ever be sure... 
the whole thing with surrealist films, which we'll get into later, is that you know you always have to leave open things to interpretation. If yeah, you try basically. to nail something down, it's going to slip like right under your fingers. Yeah, I'm trying to hold too ten- too tight onto one thing in a surrealist film. Uh, generally counterproductive. Yeah. So, but the starfish worth checking out. Worth checking out if you're. Not that's great, an example of experimental cinema. All right, let's talk about the next film that we both saw. Mm. All right, this one is a little more complicated. This one, and it has a title that made me think of uh, Alice in Wonderland, of all things. Really? Maybe a little bit. Just all a right, tiny let's bit. let's start our timer here. Uh, the movie is the the seashell and the clergyman. You almost said seagull, didn't you? No, <laughs> I made that mistake the other day. So that's uh, why I'm. So this is an, another uh, early surrealist film. It predates Unchan Andalou, and it was yeah. written by. Uh, What's his name? Artaud. Yeah, Anton Anton Artaud, who also was an actor. He acted in The Passion of Joan of Arc. And I believe he was a poet as well. Yes. but um, And it was directed by, let's see. Germain, Germain, Dulac, Germain Dulac. Who is actually a woman. Yeah. By the way. Uh, a, a female uh, uh, surrealist, who I'm actually going to make another one. What's interesting, first off, about this movie, it got banned by the British Board of Film Censors. Oh, yeah. Because, and I quote, this film is so obscure as to have no apparent meaning. If there is a meaning, it is doubtless objectionable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, we don't know what you're doing. It's like that porn citation Congress. I, I know it when I see it. Yeah. <laughs> like, what this movie, I, what I could gather about it, if I could take the lead on this one. All right, go ahead. It starts off almost seeming like there's a science experiment going on. Yeah, I think that's the centr- That's the strongest image of the film, it it's this priest like, sitting at a table with the, pouring brown liquid from a giant seashell into different bottles, yeah, and then, then dropping the bottles and, and watching them break. And then he uses a sword to break it. I thought I saw somebody that else uses night. a sword to so, break oh, no, the seashell. There's a general. Yeah, there's a general and a priest, and they're putting together this potion. And then the camera makes things look all woozy, as if the camera is taking this drug, and that or being drunk. Yeah. And then we fought. Then after this, we follow the clergyman. He's, like, running down the street, or he's on his knees, and then he's in a hallway. And then there's a woman, and the general's still it, there. He's basically then... pursuing this woman. Yeah. And I think this is part of the da- downfall of this film. Uh, hmm. Unchen Andalou, let's talk about that a little bit more. But this this is a film that's definitely about desire. Yeah. The way I interpreted this image of the clergyman with the sea cell pouring mm-hmm. liquids, I, it seems basically as a stand-in for an act of sex, getting yes. fluids into vessels. Uh, but, I mean, it's very blatant with its symbolism. There's very little mystery to decipher here. Yeah, and, you know, it's definitely part of the movement that Buñuel and Dali came in. Now, I have to wonder whether that, they saw this. They might have probably seen it. They may have. They were they were trying to get into the surrealist scene. Uh, this was just a year before I mean, Chan there Andalou. are a couple of things that, not a lot, but there are a couple of images that I feel like that even if, you know, who knows if they saw this and decided, ooh, that looks great, let me assimilate that into my movie. It might just been like how... If you see two 90s crime movies, that doesn't necessarily mean they're ripping off Tarantino exactly. No. Like, but there is a shot where the the priest character is feeling up a woman's breasts. Yeah. And then we see the breasts. And that reminded me of the shot in Unchin Andalou where the guy, you know, is fondling the woman. Right. But I think this film suffers from a lack of... Of hmm. of concrete images. Unchan Andalou is full. That... Unchan Andalou is full of images that you can go back to and say this is fantastic. But 
but Seashell and the Clergyman only has that one for mm. me. It doesn't. See, uh, liked, it doesn't do much. See, I like this movie, and the symbolism than... is so blatant that there's really not much you can you can't read very far mm. into see, it. See, I probably like this movie more than you did. Again, I what what I read into it, I can't completely understand. I do think that the we you enter more. I think it's about entering into the subconscious of this priest and a lot of repression and desire, as you said. That was part of the controversy around it. Uh, yeah, I think the it's director really and and the writer didn't get along with the presentation. He didn't want it to be that blatant of this is the subconscious. Yeah, it has a stream of consciousness feel. Um, and if you watch on YouTube, by the way, there's a great musical accompaniment. All it right. makes it almost feel like a horror film. Okay. All right. So why don't I get back to one of my movies? That's fine. All right. Uh, okay. Give me a minute. Please, dude. Uh, I need a second. Alright, so... It's like we're going into round stuff. round two. The lightning Fight. round. Alright. Uh, so, go. Alright. Um, das Boot. Or uh, Das Boot. The I Boot. Say. The Boot. Yeah, <laughs> it's given the boot. Um, A Canadian film about... Uh... <laughs> no, no, no. I only have so much time. This is from Germany in the early 80s. This is a movie that I meant to see for years. It's from director Wolfgang Peterson. And it's about... Uh, Germans on a U-boat in uh, 1941, and they're tasked to go into the Atlantic Ocean to sink uh, British uh, subs. Uh, but the problem is that Germany doesn't really have that much, uh, you know, that many subs out there, so they're off by themselves for a while. Right. I watched there are three different versions of this movie, and we talk about how there are different cuts and what you watch or don't watch. I watched the longest cut available because I wanted to get the most out of this possible. I wanted to see what the director did in total. And there is a lot of time where you're just watching the characters not really engaging in action. There are times where... And that's part of the point. The point is that these Germans didn't really have a lot of action going on. And yet, because of that, it sort of made them lose sort of their frame of reference on grip on reality. None of them because, got, I mean, think about it. You're in a small metal tube not mm -hmm. seeing other people unless you're trying to kill them. So yeah, you're isolation at, at is boredom. a problem. And at one point, a character goes kind of crazy, and probably my favorite character in the movie who's this guy who works in the engine room, and when they're finally in a big battle against uh, the British uh, fleet, he just kind of goes nuts at one point, and you think, oh no, is this the end for him? But then he actually, he just apologizes, and it things, uh, without saying too much, there's a lot of tension in this movie, there are a lot of great set pieces, um, I was with the. I was thinking throughout the movie. All right, this is a very good movie. This is working for me pretty well. I'm not up to masterpiece levels yet. The ending though is freaking great. The wow. ending made me suddenly go, "All right, this is a great film." And I love when an ending can do that. And you should check it out. Time. Okay. All right, I'm gonna get onto my last film. All right. All right Tell me when you're ready. Um, I'm ready. I'm ready. We almost didn't do that today. Yeah. All right, three, two, one. All right, I haven't seen this movie in ten years. Eraserhead. Yes. Eraserhead. Well, I, there's not much you could say about Eraserhead, but from the analyses, other people haven't said already. Maybe not, but uh, from, from analyses I've seen of Eraserhead, I've come to the conclusion that Eraserhead is a very simple story, told in probably the most vivid and. Uh, disturbing way possible. I think the best description of this is that it really is a movie that tries to approximate the feeling of being in a nightmare. Yeah. 
and not just a nightmare of this is a dream and this is horrible, you know, but nightmares of existence, like getting your girlfriend pregnant and having well, to yeah. marry her it's, it's and being saddled that... with a child. And mm-hmm. I still don't, that, that, that baby, that baby is still unsettling. It's and here's the other thing that I realized why eraser heads is still, is still a lot of fun to watch. Well, maybe not a lot of fun, but you watch it. <laughs> there are some fun, but parts you watch it. it and it's like watching a train wreck. <laughs> you cannot take your eyes away from it. And it's, it's so off putting that it makes you laugh. Uh, it's especially the scene with the family. So uncomfortable. Sure, just cut them up like regular chickens. Yeah, <laughs> smaller than my fist, but they're new. <laughs> and it's uh, it's What's... it's just like things that happen. Uh, and you just can't take your eyes off it. And no, it's, this and is... it's so awful that you have to laugh. It's so awful. <laughs> so you think this is a bad movie? No, no. It's well, the things that happen in it are awful. Okay, that's what. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and that final scene where he finally does something about this baby, and the whole oh, thing's mushrooms into something you ne- like. Uh, you know what I'm talking. Of course about. I do. I- I'm sorry for those of you who haven't seen the movie, but go see Eraserhead. It's it is, a little disturbing, it but it's name still on the full map of images that you won't forget. Time. All and right. it should also be said that because Mel Brooks saw this movie, David Lynch had a career. Well, the Elephant Man. Yes. All right, Jack. What? Uh, you ready? Uh, yep. And I'm gonna have kind of a uh, a few movies left to talk about, and then one little one. That's fine. About. Ready, set, go. Okay. So uh, these are two films by Quentin Depew. I guess maybe I'll t- spend four minutes talking about one movie after the other. Uh, first film is called Wrong. Uh, there's a lot of wrong things that happen in this movie, although it's quite <laughs> funny. The basic, it sounds like a Hitchcock film. <laughs> well, <laughs> the pr- the premise involves this guy uh, named Dolph, and he and he, he must break you. <laughs> yes. Well, he works at a place where, um, well, for one thing, now I'm going to get to this in a second. He loses his dog, and he has to find his dog. That's basically the main thrust of his narrative. He lost his dog. He doesn't know what happened to him. Uh, enter in William Fickner, who is this kind of wonky, sort of vaguely Indian Asian guy. William Fickner does seem wonky. Yeah, and he confesses, okay, I actually did kidnap your dog, but your dog is out there somewhere, and I can teach you a technique to telepathically talk with your dog. <laughs> <laughs> so this is sort of what happens with him in the movie. And meanwhile, he's kind of... Well, I found this movie very funny. It's very, like, absurd, surreal. There's a supporting character who's a gardener, and he has a liaison with a pizza delivery girl, um, all due to a misunderstanding. Uh, the main character keeps working at a, a place where it rains indoors all the time, and he got fired three months before, but he still goes to work, because why not? Um <laughs> You know, there are a I, lot of... would, I would go back to work in the raining sh- store. <laughs> what else do I have to do? Yeah, like I would. Though, I I wish this movie worked better though. Like it's very funny. It has a couple things that don't work. Like there's a neighbor who just randomly decides to leave at the start of the movie and go driving in the wilderness, and we never hear from him again. So whatever. But that's wrong. All right. Now next up after wrong, the other new and this is a new Quentin Depew movie called Reality. Um, 
<laughs> yeah. I don't like these abstract titles. Well, he also is the director of Rubber, which is, you yeah, may remember, I remember, is the film about the killer tire. Yeah. Uh, what reality is about is this is much more episodic. Why was the monster pink instead of brown or something? No reason. <laughs> yes. Well, in Spielberg's E.T., why, why didn't it. you ever see him go to the bathroom? No yeah. reason. That's an inspired opening monologue. That's that's like the best opening in years. All right, Re- reality happens is um, the, there are a few stories going on here. The main story involves this guy who works as a cameraman at a TV station, and he wants to make this movie called Waves, which are all about television. Is this Quentin Depew's autobiography? <laughs> Well, the the televisions transmit waves that make people die by making them bleed like out of every orifice Video in their body. What? All right, I don't know. I'll stop. Anyway, he this producer is intrigued and wants to make the movie, but the problem is he needs to hear what the sound of the people dying sounds like, and the director can't produce that for him. So he's given forty eight hours to come up with a groan. Of what it sounds like when the people die, and so he spends most of the movie making so, groan sounds. So it's blowout. The microphone. <laughs> Meanwhile, John Heder, aka Napoleon Dynamite, has feels like he has a rash, but we don't see the rash. What we find out possibly is that maybe he has a rash inside of his brain, which would describe this movie. This was kind of a fun movie, but it wasn't very funny. It was trying a little bit too hard. It wasn't didn't have the kind of easy absurd flow that Wrong had. Um, there are some fun things, though. At one point, the, my highlight of the movie is when the director goes and suddenly sees that the movie he wants to make has already been made, and he's in the movie theater watching this, and he goes up to in front of the audience and says, no, no, stop watching it! This movie, I haven't made this movie yet! And everyone throws popcorn at him. <laughs> so, time. Yeah. That uh, is, that's the reality. And one last film. Last one. Ready, set, go! All right. Um, this is Meshes of an Afternoon. Now, this was one you recommended to me as a surrealist film. I didn't get a chance to see it, though. Yeah. Um, this is kind of considered one of the all-time greats. Like, after uh, along, after Unchin Andalus. This, this was made been, in the early 40s, wasn't it? It was made in the early 40s. It was by another woman director. Um, her name was Maya Darren. Um, this movie is more straightforward in its narrative than uh, some of the other films that we've been talking about. Like... You actually can follow sort of what is really happening here, because what happens basically in about, um, I'd say, I'd say maybe the movie lasts like 15 minutes or so. A woman uh, comes home, and we actually don't really see her face at first. We're just kind of seeing her legs and her feet. She goes into her house, and she sits down on a on a chair, and we know that she's falling asleep because it has a shot that kind of backs up uh, into a kind of speaker. And then, um, weird things happen, because it's a realist movie. She kind of goes, she crawls up on the ceiling and sees herself sleeping in the chair. Um, <laughs> there's also a key involved, which I feel like later was poss- was very likely influenced uh, David Lynch. Yeah. He has keys sometimes in his movies, like uh, Mulholland Drive. Um, you know, I think she's, my Darren proves she's one of the master surrealists with just this movie. Uh, she made it with a collaborator, but um, and she plays. She actually also acts in the movie. She's the woman. She has really big, crazy hair. Huh. Um, and what we get with this movie is sort of also a kind of a feminist take. It's like 
what is a woman in this like in being in life does she is she with this man is she her own woman there's a figure in black who she keeps seeing who has the face of a mirror um you can read a lot into this movie but i would suggest you just check it out time check it out for yourself all right that's the two minute movie mile yes we're gonna take a short break yeah we're gonna go watch a movie uh then come back to the podcast. We're going to talk about our list movies. So, see you in a few. Adios. Adios.